Thank you very much for coming. I've been looking forward to speaking to you, and I'm very much looking forward to the questions that we're going to have, Joan and I, in a few minutes. Um, as people know me, my topic has been, I became famous because I wrote about female sexuality, and I was uh, saying that uh, in my research, uh, most women don't have orgasms from simple intercourse. But the implications of that seem to be met with a lot of happiness by many women, uh, but, and even men also, but the implications of that haven't been followed through. To me, it's really a human rights issue that women may know how to have orgasm by themselves. In, in over 90% of cases, they do, but at the same time, uh, generally, they don't feel free to speak up about this and to show the people that they even love in their lives how this works out. So to me, uh, there's a lot to be said about that. When I open the newspaper at this point uh, and I see the conflict in the Middle East and the so-called war on terrorism and so forth, then usually these kind of articles are accompanied by photographs of women ostensibly from the Middle East uh, covered in a black garment with headlines uh, which uh, say that so-and-so was bombed today and thus and so. Usually the women are looking rather distressed. To me, it's remarkable that we see these images which have become kind of emblematic of the so-called war, uh, but at the same time, there isn't any really official comment about what that means. In the beginning, when we all got used to the idea of the shadow, it was explained a few times that women are required to wear this in some cultures because um, it covers the female body. If the female body would be showing, then in these kind of theories, then some men would be so attracted that they would, I don't know what. Anyway, um, so the reason, the rationale given for women being required to wear these garments is because uh, something about female sexuality, which isn't very clear. But the women's movement that I first was a member of in the 1970s was speaking about the use of the female body and the display of the female body and whether or not we should appear with more clothes or less clothes and so forth. That was one of the issues that was debated at the time and still is being debated. To me, the issue of female sexuality is really central to the global conflict at this point. But no official document, either in the UK or in the US, uh, sees fit to say that, well, okay, the West stands for a view of women which is very diverse and certainly encourages women to get jobs, even if we don't have equal pay yet. Uh, still, that women are encouraged to uh, get an education and go out and uh, do what they want. 
this is not the case in some other cultures. In fact, 97% of the world's illiterate are women. <laughs> so the West could very well, to use a phrase, the West, sorry, but anyway, they could very well say that and get a lot of support for saying that one of the causes behind what the so-called war is being fought for has to do with women and women's position in society and in family. But it, I can't understand why no one is saying that, really. Once in a while, President Bush refers to it in a speech, but it's not in any official documents whatsoever. In the beginning of democracy, whether in the French Revolution or in the American Revolution, there was um, a women's movement in both countries. Uh, so in the late 1700s, sorry. Um, but the founders of both uh, republics declined to include women. They gave the right to vote to propertied men white men, in fact. And it took uh, some time for these uh, rights to be extended to others. Now, of course, we speak of democracy very proudly, and we want it to include everyone. As women, of course, we're trying now to integrate into the world and to have our own rights. I suppose you might have heard of the days in which women didn't have their own passports, so women were just included as the property of either their husband or their father on his passport. In any case, um, I don't understand why the various governments are not saying that one of the things that they stand for is women's rights. On another point, please tell me when our time is up. I would like to say that um, Around us now, there's a deluge of pornography. We see uh, images in advertising which are very sexualized, especially using women's bodies to sell things, but also using men, increasingly so. These kind of images, people sometimes feel, are caused by equality, whatever that means. So the idea is, oh, didn't the women's movement cause these problems of sexual um, um, let it all hang outness, whatever? <laughs> and so I would like to say that at that time in the 60s and 70s, there was a movement called the Sexual Revolution, which probably had a lot to do with the invention of the birth control pill. Um, Helen Gurley Brown, the founder of Cosmopolitan Magazine, would say that with her early work about uh, sex and the single girl, that she had a lot to do with that. And maybe she did. Um, before that time, as you know, <clears throat> women were supposed to not have sex before marriage, although men could happily do so and not be criticized. But even today, of course, women are... Uh, often called sluts and whores and so on, if they do have sex very often. So it's a very confusing matter for many people to understand that the sexual revolution 
in the 1960s and 70s was quite separate from either the civil rights movement or the peace movement, remember the anti-war movement, or the women's movement. They were all separate movements. And individual members of those movements were influenced by the other movements, of course, so sometimes their verbiage sounded, um, was reminiscent of the other movements. So maybe some people in the women's movement spoke as if, oh yes, it's hip to have sex all the time and so forth. But that was not the main cause of the women's movement. In fact, later, some even accused the women's movement of being, uh, having a case of good girlism, and being very uh, divided also into the good girls of the women's movement and then the bad girls. <laughs> so these kind of divisions go very deep. Since there is this confusion between these earlier movements, some today feel that the reason we have pornography all around us is because, um, oh, the women's movement has demanded uh, sexual freedom for women, and therefore, it's their fault. But in fact, I don't think that that is what women had in mind. In my research, they were already complaining about pressure on them to have sex at the drop of, the hat, of a hat, as one put it. Uh, and so it doesn't seem that really that's the direction of the liberation movement in terms of sexuality that women had in mind at all. So these trends are all coming together at a point now in which we really need to work it out because I think that one of the ways to go forward in trying to um, restore society and get along with our neighbors across the world is to talk about the position of women and to talk about female sexuality <clears throat> and what it means. Without doing that, I can't see how we're going to create a stable foundation for any kind of lasting understanding. Well, do you think that we can? Yes. Okay. So, thank you. Are, are these microphones working? Can everyone hear us? Okay. Right. Um, one of, one of the books that influenced me most when I was a lot younger was Kate Millett's Sexual Politics. And that whole idea of, of conjoining sex and politics seemed to me very exciting. And what you've been describing now is a kind of separation of the two ideas, so that people actually find the idea that, that sex has something to do with the political situation we find ourselves in post 9-11. People actually find that quite challenging. So why do you think that is, and how, how do we bring back the idea of sexual politics? Yeah, sexual politics at the time was a phrase that Kate thought of and put there on, the, on her book, and it became a phrase that people use a lot. And even today, I don't think that people quite know what it means, but it sounds good. <laughs> so since it sounds good, we can use it. But sexual politics... Uh, it's funny, you know, the categories that we have of left and right seem to me rather outdated, but I suppose they go back to a kind of Marxian view of 
economy or something like that? Maybe someone here who's more familiar with economic history than I am can tell me where these names originated. But in the United States as well, left and right is a, a kind of interchangeable and frequently used um, way of discussing things. So I think really that women's bodies are much more central to politics than, they're at least as central as economics. But people, people st there's, there's a sort of hostility to those kind of old feminist terms. And there's, 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 you, you often get articles talking about post-feminism. And, and, and I always think, well, when we've had feminism, perhaps we can get around to having post-feminism. But um, it's, yeah. it's, there's, there's a sort of resistance. And, and, and there, was a, there was a very bad television program last year um, suggesting that women were now in charge of everything. And it's, it's, it's strange how those ideas take hold in, in, in popular culture when they're, when they're so obviously not true. And we, as you said, we don't even have equal pay. And women have a relatively, if you look at the, the, the cabinet in this country or the Bush administration, just how few women are involved in making decisions at a high level. Um, so, so women are excluded in two ways, both actually, the, you know, actually intellectually excluded, but also, as you say, women's bodies are excluded from this this discourse, but is that because men assume that the discourse about women's bodies is for, is for them to make? I've been wondering why it could be, and so the obvious reason that some of my old friends would, make, would say is that, well, uh, men own reproductive rights of women at the moment, and they don't want to change that. Now, most men are not thinking about that, so therefore... Um, is that really the reason? I'm not sure what, I'm not sure really what would be the reason that men uh, wouldn't want to change. Uh, I think that in my view what we should do is we should now try to have a kind of interaction between people, physical interaction, which is not focused on reproductive activity. I think there's too much pressure on men to get a big erection, as they put it, and, uh, you know, it's what she wants. That's what my email box tells me anyway. Um, so there's pressure on men to get a big erection, and then there's pressure on women to have orgasm during this event so that there's a kind of unwritten script that you're supposed to follow. And that, I guess, um, is leading to part of the problem if people could then just let their bodies uh, follow into what they felt and then they could kind of have a dialogue and listen to the other person's body, the goal being to get as aroused as possible, I think that would be a good uh, aim to make for sex so that men would feel it's as much their definition as women do. And in that sense, um, I don't think there needs to be a division between men and women in terms of sexual politics. The, the Guardian has just um, published a survey um, saying that uh, too many people are interested in having a good time and working and um, not enough people are having children. And this kind of immediately goes into a kind of anti-feminist discourse. And so on the way here, I, was, I got a call from Woman's Hour asking me if I'd take part in a discussion. And the other person who... Um, 
they've invited as Belle Mooney, who, and, and what, apparently what she's going to say is that, you know, it's time for women to get back into the family, to value motherhood more, to have, you know, value, value having children more. And, and it, it always amazes me just how old-fashioned this is, because it always turns into blaming very fast. And, you know, the idea that there are six billion people in the world, and maybe the problem isn't, you know, not having enough children, it's having too many. And the idea that there are other roles for women, that the, the, the idea that women basically have to be mothers comes back very, very quickly in culture, I think. Yes, it does. And the first person who started saying this about, that I know of anyway, uh, was Pat Buchanan, who said that it's feminism that we have to blame for the demise of the family. So often in the, we, you hear in the political um, sub-speak sort of subtext, you hear things like, uh, well, the family is collapsing and the West is going down and the problem is a lack of purity. And so in, we have to, in Saudi Arabia, for example, we have to keep our women pure and uh, so that means that they're sort of uneducated and before becoming mothers, then they uh, don't go out of the home a lot. Um, then after getting married, of course, they should be mothers. That's the view of the traditional family. And I was quite disconcerted to hear uh, some politicians here who were known as liberals uh, state that they thought the traditional family was a good thing don't they realize when they're saying that that really they're condemning women to a very strange position? To an absence of choice. Yes. yes. And Pat Buchanan, of course, after, was, was it him who after 9-11 said that um, the people who were, who were to blame for 9-11 for were gays, feminists, and a whole coalition of people? It's Jerry Falwell, That's you know, who's now the sort of next in kin. He's taken on all of these arguments, and he did say that too. There was an interesting thing um, uh, I, I thought after 9-11, which was that um, the Saudi intelligence service admitted that 25,000 young Saudi men had left the country with the blessing of the rulers to go and train in terrorist camps in about 50 countries, Chechnya, Bosnia, um, Afghanistan, all those places. Um, and the regime were actually quite glad to get rid of them. Um, not realizing that it would, it would come back in the way it has. But one of the things that strikes me about those cultures, which are very Puritan, is that you have all those, in, in, in places like Saudi Arabia, there was no natural way for men and women to meet before they married. And so you have huge sexual energy, which is very, very frustrated. And when you look at the kind of um, texts that were left behind by people like Mohammed Atta, who was the leader of the 9-11 the um, suicide attacks, they're absolutely obsessed with sexual purity. And both, and it, and it seems to me very dangerous because what, what he, he left a will and testament where he said um, he didn't want any woman to approach his body because that would make it unclean. And it seems to me that one of the things, one of the ways in which you're right is that if, if you don't allow that sort of natural uh, outflow of sexual energy and you don't give people a natural way to mix, then where does that energy go? And it goes into obsessions with sexual purity and sometimes into violence. Do you, do you think that's true? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, we think, uh, I, I think we should really question the whole idea of purity anyway, and why sex is seen to be the opposite of purity, why these two are seen as the extremes of two poles. Um, 
you know, priests are not supposed to be married and not supposed to be having sex. And so the ideas of Islam are very close to the ideas of Christianity as it was traditionally known in that sense because both of them, both religions, have the Garden of Eden legend which teaches that the woman is the cause of the original sin and she was the provocatrice and so on. Uh, they pose the whole idea, those legends pose the whole idea already, both religions do, of sex as being opposite of purity. Why that is, no historian has ever figured out. But this doesn't have to be. We wouldn't have to see the world as composed of the pure ones who don't have sex and then the other ones. In your work, when you um, going back to your, your height reports, um, is, is, is purity a subject that comes up when people are answering your questionnaires? Well, it didn't in the past because it wasn't a trend word, but now it's become a kind of trend word. It's not the way they usually describe what's going on. They are more likely to talk about virginity than purity. So virginity is a code word also for, you know, the Just Say No campaign, mm. which is a sort of virginity idea of how to avoid all the ills of the world. <laughs> I had a, I did a, um, on the BBC World Service a couple of years ago, I did a debate on virginity with um, uh, the senior, I think he was the, the senior medical um, uh, authority in, in Jordan. And it was fascinating because I was saying that virginity is just a physical state, you know, it doesn't have any moral value. And he was saying, of course, you're right. But then what he was complaining about was um, the, the trend for, for women who have lost, lost their virginity, in inverted commas, to have operations to restore it. To make sure that they could get he was married commenting again. On that. Yes, and he and he he thought that this was a, ter a terrible, terrible thing because it was cheating them, their 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 husbands. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One sees the logic. <laughs> <laughs> but but, it, but how how does virginity come up? And I mean, do do women worry about it now in a way that they didn't before? Yeah, they worry a little bit about it, yes, especially if they've been approached to join the virginity clubs. And you know, uh, I can become a virgin too. You can become a born-again virgin. <laughs> yes, I don't want anyone to feel excluded. So. But most of the people in those clubs are teenagers. Mm. And so some boys join, but mostly girls join. It, the idea of being better if you're not having sex is what's the appeal. So you seem to be part of an exclusive club. You're one of the good people of this world if you didn't have sex. That's the point of it. And are these very popular in the States? Well, you know, I teach in China, and in China they became really popular too amongst a certain age group, which is sort of age 20, 21, something like that. And what's driving it? Is it, is it, is it anxiety about AIDS? Is, is, it, is, it, is it religious? Well, I think these clubs started a few years back in the States, and it was part of the um, general, uh, you know, something about AIDS has kind of like gone into the public psyche also in terms of, oh, it's sex is a bad thing, and if you do it in any form, you could get sick, and you could have something terrible happen to you. So... At about the same time that AIDS was discussed quite a bit, there became the campaign, Just Say No, you remember. Mm. 
Anyway, so all of those things came together and now it's uh, become uh, more and more popular. I was quite surprised. I thought that this had died away, but no. I'm in a w another way not surprised because there's a large uh, feeling increasing, I think, in Western countries uh, that the West is decadent, is the feeling uh, we're tired of seeing all these sexual images. Uh, people in my research say we're tired of having to perform sex all the time and seem to be sexy. Therefore, uh, we want to return to a traditional way of life. But I think that the only reason why we uh, see the two alternatives of being either to be virginal or to be super sexy is because uh, we've had this spectrum of views for so long that you're either sexy or you're puritanical. We don't see that there could be many other ways to express ourselves. And isn't th what you're talking about is the impact of the commercial sex industry, isn't it, really? Yes. Um, and it, se it seems to me that's the difficulty, and I sometimes think this is, this is particularly so for young women, is how, I think for, for my generation, we were just very excited about um, discovering our sexuality and talking about it and trying it out, because we weren't bombarded with the kind of very, yes, right. very pornographic images that have sort of migrated into, into popular culture. And I think what's hard for young women sometimes is to, is to be authentically sexy and not sexy in a way which is just a kind of male fantasy. Yes. In the 1960s, there was already that problem of these kind of advertising pornography images of women as sort of sex objects for men. So a lot of women were protesting about that feeling then, in those very early years. But then, uh, with all of the agitation of the women's movement and so on in the 70s and 80s, um, those images went away. Now I think that they've really returned under the guise of being hip. So the new hip thing is that you have to be sexy and dress sexy and really like sex and talk about it a lot. Uh, there's even a designer label that's misspelled fuck, you know, F-C-U-K, <laughs> which is taken around the world as being a kind of a code word for being trendy, western, young, modern, and so forth. But um, the images you're talking about are definitely influencing people to not want to have to fit into them. They don't like these images that they see and the pressure to be one of those, like in the images. But the danger is that women get frightened by those pressures into retreating into a kind of sexual purity, isn't it? Yes, that's right. When, so it would be really good if we can break the hold that these two extremes have on us and if politicians would begin to speak about these issues it would be very helpful. And they are very political issues because um, you and I have talked about this and, and I do a lot of work on, on sex trafficking and it seems to me that that's the most overt attempt by men to, in, in the West to control female sexuality. It's to turn, it's taking women from the East and actually bringing mostly from Eastern Europe but also Southeast Asia and bringing them here as, as virtually sex slaves. And that's the kind of worst aspect of 
the commercialization of sex here. And one of the things that worries me is, that, you know, a recent survey showed that the number of men in this country who admitted using prostitutes had doubled between 1995 yeah. and 2000. And everyone, everyone you talk to says it's probably doubled again. And partly this is driven by the internet. And when you look at these sites like um, pontonet.com, men now post reviews in inverted commas of prostitutes on the internet. And it will say things like, you know, nice, nice Polish girl, didn't speak much English, but, you know, very obliging. And obviously some of these women are trafficked. Um, so so the, the, the commercial sex industry, which, which has kind of organized crime links, is now huge. Um, and, and, and I think that's the most worrying thing, the way in which men are trying to take control of women in this part of the world. And in the East, you've got the opposite thing, which is, you know, actually kind of, at least we have a space where we can protest about this and we can talk about it. Whereas in, whereas in, in countries like Saudi Arabia, women, have, women just have that, that single image of, of being covered <coughs> and they have no voice at all. And I think, it, I mean, this is a long, a long question, but it's, 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 there are different kinds of ways that men control women's bodies and sexuality and they're different in different cultures. But they, all, they are all about this urge to control women, isn't, isn't that right? It seems to be, yes. And lots of young men take on a different style and so they would immediately say that they're <coughs> not doing this. But there are, it's, while it's true that there are many diverse points of view about being male, still there's a lot of group pressure coming from other men onto all kinds of men telling them that they have to like this or they have to want it or they have to act sexy and so on. When you were speaking, I was wondering if uh, the marketing of uh, drugs for erection is also making um, the increase in visiting uh, um, prostitutes because uh, maybe men uh, want to try out their um, the drugs and see how it goes uh, with someone and see if they have an erection for a period of time. But in general, I would imagine that uh, many men, there is no benefit to most men for latching on to these kind of male stereotypes. I do think it's a sort of a, it's very bad for men. I mean, look, what do men get from being men? Aside from getting, uh, being elected to government and so forth. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> but in terms of the definition of sex, then men have a lot of pressure on them to uh, perform and have an erection. So it's not really in their interest to wish to perform it in that way. At least they often told me that they preferred to have orgasm in other ways. And Masters and Johnson, who measured the bodies and the contractions and the strength of the contractions and so on, showed that men have stronger orgasms uh, during self-stimulation, for example, than they do during intercourse. So. I think the way forward is to try to talk to men about um, the advantages and disadvantages to them of going along with these kind of stereotypes. You know, I mean, why do men visit prostitutes? I mean, is it really in their interest? I guess they feel relaxed during that. And they feel that since they paid, they don't have to perform in any way. And uh, that's to their liking, the ones who visit prostitutes. <coughs>
I, th I think I think there, 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 there does seem to be quite a lot of peer group pressure on, on young men. You know that that um, when when the police raid um, brothels where, where there are lots of trafficked women, what they find is that you know young men go in groups towards the end of the evening. It's a way of finishing off the evening, mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's almost like a sort of masculine ritual at the end at the <coughs> end of the evening. And presumably, if if your friends are doing that, it takes some. Um, you know, courage to, to say no. I don't want to go along with that. Yes, I'm sure that it's you know it's almost impossible for men who are already in a group like that to be the one to say because there's this terrible bullying that goes on in such groups, <coughs> in which uh, if one man stood up and said he didn't want to do that, then the other men would turn on him and start saying, "What are you afraid? Are you a chicken shit?" and so forth. You know, what's your problem? And then that would uh, produce pressure on the man who was trying not to go along with it to be um, maybe putting himself in danger. So uh, to me, I think in my research, what turned out to be the case is that growing up, boys go through this period of being very close to their mothers. Then when they become, um, well, it can happen early and earlier now, but anyway, during puberty, then they learn that uh, they have to be bigger than their mother. Their mother uh, has to now serve them and not tell them what to do. And especially in front of other boys, they have to show that their mother can't tell them what to do. So in that sense, they learn uh, to have a different moral code with women than they do with their fellows, other men and boys. Now. This is a real problem. Otherwise, I think that there are so many men who don't agree with the stereotypes about, uh, oh, I'm going to own a woman and possess one and so forth, that they would immediately stand up and find the courage to speak up against the other men and tell them why they disagree and so forth. They would certainly be a majority. But these kind of things get fixed in stone and they keep on being repeated in this system of teasing and bullying is continuing in part. It's one of the striking things about um, your, your book which came out here in I think November December, um, the updated type report on men. It was, it was, it was striking just um, your research seemed to suggest that men were actually quite unhappy in lots of ways and, and felt cut off from their own emotions but also cut off from um, links with other men and women. Yes, that's right. And so boys in my research were saying, which it took me a long time to believe, that they went through a sort of dark night of the soul or a period of feeling unhappy for about a year when they had to start telling their mother, uh, don't tell me what to do and so forth in front of others. They were very nervous about that. And I mean, it's a truism to say that men have problems talking about their feelings. Everybody has heard this a million times. Obviously, it's true. So men do feel cut off from other men, and they feel cut off from women, and they feel generally uh, that they have trouble communicating with others. So if they didn't buy into this whole masculinity system, then they would have a better quality of life. Because men are actually not very nice to each other sometimes, as well as, as, well as the problems they have with women. That's true. 
Well, what, what, were the, what were the kind of anxieties that, that men were expressing when, in, in your, when you were doing the updated research on men? Had their anxieties changed from when you did the first <coughs> report on men? Uh, I'm not sure if I understood your question. Well, when, when you did the first height report on men, what were the things that men were anxious about? Were they different from what you found in your later research, the, 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 their worries about performance and things like that? No, because I was always going for a very deep level. And so I was very interested in their relationship with their mother and so forth. And that hasn't really changed. It's not surprising that it hasn't changed so much over these years because we're talking about a system that's over 2,000 years old. So it's a kind of bedrock, and we often hear it called biological. People think that the things that we think are kind of instinctual, is a fragile here, or hormonal is a fragile here. But in my view, it's part of a, an, a, a mental system that we're all growing up to learn. When, when, when um, at the weekend, when I, when I, um, the Independent on Sunday, um, I ran my interview with you, and a lot of, a lot of people were approached and asked about the importance of your work. Um, a number of people said how incredibly important the first Hyde report was, and how, how does it feel to, to have that kind of, I mean, a weight, a weight placed upon you as a person and your work. No, it feels really good. It felt really good to hear that so many women had gotten so much out of my work. I just wonder why we haven't gone on to take the next step. So there's someone in my family, uh, which would be, of course, to change the way we're performing sex with others. You'll often hear it said that, uh, oh, women really want uh, his big penis stuck into them, for lack of a better word, sorry. Um, anyway, um, and sometimes that's true. In some situations and in some relationships, uh, especially on, in, on some days. But it's not true every minute, and it's not a kind of... Uh, the way it's portrayed to be, it's a, portrayed sort of like uh, it's an animal desire or something. And I just think that there is no way to say which parts of how we relate to other bodies is an animal desire. So someone in my family, as I started to say, um, she said, she kept on saying, yes, but it's women's fault because women are not speaking up. <laughs> and I said, you know, I felt it going through me the idea, what you said earlier about blame, why is this blaming thing coming up so quickly? But I didn't say that, so I just listened, and there was repetition of this. It's women's fault because they're not speaking up. And I thought, well, yes, of course, uh, many women are not speaking up. So when you asked how I felt about it, I felt really good that so many consider my work important. But I wonder if they are speaking up in private. I hope so. But I, I also have the, the sense that um, it's, it's almost always women who say how important your work is. And so do you think it's had more impact on women than it has on men? Well, honestly, no. I think that it's a, you're, it's a good point you're making that it's all women who were asked in that particular situation. I was, remember being really surprised when I first got a letter from a man uh, after I published the first book telling me that he felt really relieved 
to find out that there was nothing wrong with him because he and his wife had had this situation going on for a long time in which she didn't have orgasm from intercourse and he thought maybe it was something wrong with him and so gradually the, it had become the truism in the family that it was his fault and his problem so he was very relieved to find out that he wasn't at fault that there was it was kind of the norm <laughs> well, why do you think that there was this really quite concerted attack on your, your work in America and linking your work to somehow destroying the family? Was it, was it because you, was, was it the idea that if women, if women discovered that they, they could have sexual pleasure themselves or with other women that they wouldn't be <coughs> men anymore or, 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 or was, was it more sort of a, a, a kind of religious problem? Of, uh, you know, we know how Christian the, the It was the combination of all of those things and uh, the attack in, in my view and in the view of the committee that uh, stood up and presented a, a statement in my defense um, the attack was coming from an increasing right-wing group in the United States who uh, wanted to stop uh, the effects of feminism and so forth. Because, think of this, I mean, if women do get equal pay, it disrupts the economy, doesn't it? But if women go back and we're quietly supporting the family and taking care of people, then nursing won't cost so much, and... Um, we won't cost so much, in theory, and therefore the economy will continue the way it had been. That's the thinking, I guess, if you can call it thinking. So, on the one hand, there's the kind of logical side of it, and on the other hand, it's a kind of knee-jerk reaction to any change. I mean, any time women tried to get their rights, for example, with the suffragette movement in the 19th century, there was also a feeling that um, this is negative to men because men have got the good stuff and if women want to be involved in society then men will have to step aside and move over and make space for women. Now economists have shown that actually the society could flourish even more with the input of both men and women but that's not the general perception. So. I suppose, between the whole idea of purity and sex being bad and the economy going downhill and wouldn't be nice if mom was still in the kitchen, all those ideas went together and gave these friendly fellows the idea, if we can shut up this one, we'll really do a service. <laughs> and, and of course, I, I always think what, what's, what was... Um quite dishonest about the attacks on you is that you have always been attacked because you're a feminist and because you're beautiful. And then Andrew Dworkin, who was of course a friend of yours and whose work I admire tremendously, was attacked for precisely the opposite, mm. um, that, that, that she, was, she was overweight. and she, she, It always seems to me there's a sort of dishonesty about the attack on feminism because it That's always right. caricatures you. So there are, there, there are you know, there's, when, I was, when my book Mis Misogynies came out in the States, I was travelling around doing one of those author tours where you sort of see nine people a day. And time after time, I walked into a radio station or newspaper and they'd say, oh, I didn't think you'd be blonde. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because, you know, they, they thought I'd be much older. God knows what they thought I would wear. And one man, actually, on a radio station in Chicago, he said to me, um, Miss Smith, have you heard of the vagina dentata? And, and I was about to say yes when he kind of, he, he leaned towards the microphone and said, dentata meaning 
dental. <laughs> and then he said, I think you're accusing men of psychopathy or sexualis. Oh, really? and, <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, fuck, you know, Kraft Ebbing, what did he say? Um, but but, but there is, it, they, they get you both ways. I mean, you know, that, that they caricature feminists as lesbians, man-haters, unattractive. They caricature feminists as being beautiful and obsessed with clothes. I mean, we get it in the neck from every direction. And it's interesting, too, that he immediately talked about sex with you. <laughs> and then he immediately talked about... happens. Yes. <laughs> Somehow or another, that you know, any woman who speaks up is is, is seen to be kind of a, a sexual person. Mm. Funny, isn't it? Mm. Well, well, sort of. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we do get rather tired of it. Um, so, so your 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 the compendium of your compendium of your work has just been published, and I know you're very interested in this idea of politics and um, and terrorism and so on. Are you going to continue doing the height reports? I would like to, yes, but that's quite an endeavor, doing the research for them. It's a big job. So I would like to do something, if I could think how to do it, about um, the double standard and women. Think about the names, for example, Miss and Mrs., but there's only Mr. So Mr. means, I guess, penis, but, well, it's a form of uh, sort of... Uh, He's shaking his head, so I'm saying, <laughs> yes, it's not meant to be that. Mr. and Master. It's just that Master had gone out of use, but at one time there were two titles for men, young men, but I believe were Masters. That's and right. The older men were Mistress, but uh, that makes right. your argument look rather weak. So we no, it doesn't, because even if you stage, have, even if you have Master and Mister, if we would bring back the usage of Master, which used to be, as you point out, uh, the younger boys were called master, uh, then you would still have the world divided into women and men, which is, I don't think it's so biologically inevitable. I think we're exaggerating these differences and creating what we like to refer to as the battle of the sexes ourselves by our own ideas of separateness and teaching boys that when they reach a certain age, they have to prove that they're bigger, stronger, and more important than their mothers and other women and their sisters, for example. Well, at my so, school, we didn't have any lessons teaching us that we were bigger, stronger, and more important than women, but perhaps I left out. Half the grammar school may have failed me. I don't know. You know, I think you should read one of my books. syllabus in the average British school, which has got nothing to do with teaching boys that they're better. Thank you. I Thank think you. We'll, that we'll, this we'll, happens. We'll, don't worry. We'll, we'll take questions in, in about five yes. minutes. Okay. <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's interesting that um, that men don't want don't want to admit that they're masters anymore. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, if if your 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 book on 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 sex and love the the, the hype report that came out was it the third book. The third hype report was Women and Love. Women it was the research into women's emotions during uh, falling in love and what is love was really the question of it. And is, is that an exercise you'd like to repeat? Well, no, I wouldn't like to repeat it since uh, it was so difficult to write about it in the first place because it's an effort to shift language and we still don't have different language. You'll often hear it said, Whenever a couple divorces, you'll hear it said, uh, he must have dumped her. And that's the presumption. 
usually that it's the man who's decided to leave the woman. The man is more powerful psychologically than the woman. The woman is just impossible and so forth. So these were the kind of emotions that I was trying to rename and talk about that we're using these kind of stereotypes uh, to describe situations because we've learned these kind of uh, thought processes. But trying to change those thought processes is quite a project. <laughs> <laughs> but to go back to, to the very beginning, and uh, we were talking about the world after 9-11, are you optimistic that things can be changed because we are in quite a, a dire situation at the moment. Yes, I think that we can change a lot if we change ourselves. But democracy is not perfect and others around the world can notice that. So we speak a lot about equality, but if we don't show that we have it, then who will believe it that we've got it? So therefore, it would be easier for us, instead of uh, giving lessons to the world, to try and Make, put our own house in order, as they used to say. So I guess it's some kind of fear of really fulfilling our own tradition that's keeping things uh, back now. What would you say about that? <laughs> um, I, su I suppose I think that uh, I, th I think we need to bring back some kind of feminist, feminist perspective to this, this whole debate. I mean, it just seems to me that the, the absence of, the, of discussion about the female body after 9-11 is quite Amazing. extraordinary. Um, really? And yes, because it does seem to me that a lot of religious extremism, whether it's Christian or, or, or Islamic, um, has its origin in fear of women, women's sexuality and the changes that, that women have gone through. And I think, I think you know, there was a status quo which, which people thought was normal, which was actually women being subservient. And we haven't actually achieved full equality, but that's a very terrifying thing. And, and, I, and it, it, it worries me. A, a friend of mine who's Lebanese was um, at university in Cairo about 30 years ago, and she's just been back to Cairo again. And she said she walked down Huda Sharawi Street. And Huda Sharawi, as you probably know, is a sort of great um, Egyptian feminist uh, born in the 19th century, the first woman to remove her, her veil. And um, Hanan said, rang me up when she got back and said, I walked down Huda Sharawi Street and I was the only woman who wasn't wearing a veil. Oh. And Egypt has been you know, a, a very secular culture for yes. a long time. And so those pressures on women worry me a great deal. And I think that we in the West are kind of handicapped because we're worried about, we, d we know about the bad things in our own culture, you know, the, the commercial sex industry, trafficking, the, those kind of unpleasant things. And, and, and I think we do have to find a way through which allows us to say, yes, but women have achieved certain things and at least we have some choices and we can fight back against this. And women in, in, um, in, in I, I chaired the Pen Writers in Prison Committee for four years, and so I've worked a lot with imprisoned writers, and um, some of whom, of course, are women. And what always strikes me is that right across the world, people basically want the same things. They want to say in government, they, want, they don't want to be governed from above. You know, they, they, want, they want to say, they want civil society, and they want to say in it. And I, I think we have to find a, a way of... Um, of, of, of making that argument. But anyway, you're not here to listen to what I think. So um, we've got yes. a, rov a roving microphone if, um, if, if people want to put their hands up and ask, share questions.